Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Tom Lenahan, the Chief Investment Officer at the Wallace Foundation, where he oversees $2 billion for the New York City-based foundation, whose mission is to foster equity and improvements in learning and enrichment for young people. Tom is only the second CIO in Wallace's history, having taken over the helm in January of 2021. Before joining Wallace, he served as Deputy CIO of Rockefeller University under longtime CIO Amy Falls, and Tom appeared as the fourth guest on Capital Allocators back in 2017. 
That replay is available in the feed and offers a fantastic comparison in Tom's perspective as a deputy compared to a CIO. Our conversation this time dives into his transition, managing a team and a portfolio during COVID, and how Tom has approached asset allocation of a new pool of capital. We discuss his key priorities for the portfolio and his perspectives on China, venture capital, private equity, hedge funds, inflation, cash, and crypto. We close with Tom's approach to building and working with his team, governance, and future risks. Please enjoy my second conversation with Tom Lenahan. Tom, great to see you. Ted, always a pleasure. Well, this is going to be fun. We'll replay our first episode, which was one of the very first, so coming up on five years ago. But I know since then, you have transitioned to the CIO seat here at Wallace and would love to hear, I guess, first, just your thoughts of going from deputy CIO to CIO. Yeah, absolutely. It is always great to spend time with you and talk about so many fun topics. I can't tell you enough the training that I got at Rockefeller, you know, spending nine and a half years there with Amy Falls as the deputy, got exposed to everything. And Amy is the type of boss and has the type of management style where she is incredibly collaborative, incredibly open, old school in the sense that we'll give you as much rope as you need to hang yourself with. So if you want to do more, take on more responsibilities and feel free, but just make sure that you're on the right track. That really was great training and let me spread my wings to prepare me to be even able to take a position here at Wallace, which I joined January of 2021. I'm the second ever CIO here, big shoes to fill. My predecessor, Rob Nagel, actually predated the foundation. He came over from the finance team at Reader's Digest and then became the very first CIO here. The first thing he did was arguably one of the most impactful was like any great foundation that has founder stock, he divested of the stock and invested it in an endowment foundation style, heavy equity, heavy alternatives, but diversified. And we're here today because of that. Uh, had he not done that, and we were still in the the public company stock of Reader's Digest, it went bankrupt in the 2000s. And so yet another case study of the beauty of diversifying. So in the year you've been here, what's been different from your expectations coming in? Well, I would say a big one was just the volume of emails. I always knew that Amy had a tidal wave of emails that she was going through. And I knew that she read all of them. I don't know how she did it. I don't know if she actually ever operated on any one time zone. She's kind of a global citizen anyway. And so I kind of think that she just worked 26 hours a day. There'd be plenty of emails that she would ask me to respond to or other team members, but she would still have to kind of process all that. And that was a great life lesson was you got to pick and choose. Not every email, I hate to say this, not every email deserves a response. <laughs> and so you got to be very picky. It's a broader idea that you got to be very picky with how you spend your time. That is the one thing I can say that we can control in this crazy world is how we spend our time and actually our team's time. So while I was at Rockefeller, I was still helping to manage the entire investment team. And it was a very collaborative approach with Amy. And that didn't change. That's kind of the same here. But I never really gave full appreciation for what it's like to kind of sit in the chair you're not just in charge of your own time. You're in charge of everybody else's time and making sure that we're putting it to the most productive use um, possible. And so if you think through the types of emails that come through that surged in volume compared to your old seat, 
how would you classify those? <laughs> so the first batch are totally unsolicited groups I've never heard of before, people I've never heard of before that were not referred by anybody that I know. So they are literally cold calls. Money managers. Money managers. Yeah. Or placement agents or folks that are next order trying to raise the capital. And it could be dear blank. I've gotten ones that are dear blank. And those are kind of easy to kind of clean out. And then you start to go through like tiers of priorities. I'm getting things from LinkedIn, which that's a change. Never got that before at Rockefeller. It just shows how LinkedIn is just growing exponentially. But people are finding me on LinkedIn. And I'm actually kind of scared to even open up my LinkedIn account. I'm on no other social networking except that. And I'm not really on that. But I'm fearful. I guess there's a feature. This shows, I'm going to definitely show my age here, that you can purchase a premium version of LinkedIn and you can track who's looking at you or at your profile, which I think is scary. <laughs> I just do not <laughs> want to be considered a stalker in any way, shape, or form. So I won't even go onto LinkedIn, but every now and then I will accept somebody that reaches out and just says, hey, touch me on LinkedIn. But that is something that I never had to deal with before. Yeah. So you came in during COVID in a virtual world. How have you thought about structure your team and then managing both the team in COVID and then we could talk a little bit about how investment processes are evolved virtually. Yeah, it's a great question. And we're still working through it because now we're kind of emerging from COVID. And so we're spending a lot of time on what worked well in the remote world, what lessons that we learned that we can keep, and which things are just better done in person. And we're now, uh, just this week, we're coming back to the office in a hybrid mode here at Wallace, where we're back Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the office, and then Monday, Friday, work from home. And I think Anytime you, you can cut down your commute, because we have folks coming in from all over the place, is a good thing. But we're becoming a little smarter, saying, okay, these are, you know, when we have these types of meetings for a manager, let's have them on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, when everybody can participate, typically with managers that are already incumbents of ours or that are high on our watch list. For more intro meetings from groups that are maybe in different locations, either in the United States or internationally, maybe those could be done on Mondays and Fridays, and maybe those can be done via Zoom. And the fact that you can start your day at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, and then turn off your monitor at 5 o'clock, you can put in a very solid 8, 9 hours and not have to commute an hour and a half each way. Suddenly, what that does to somebody's mental state, I think is tremendous, all for the, the benefits of it. But you're absolutely right. I actually interviewed for this position entirely remotely, which was odd, was onboarded to this position entirely remotely. We had to shrink the team that I inherited before we could grow it again. So we had three people, we shrunk it down to one. Those were very lean years. I have to give a shout out to Joyce Zhang. She's the one that stood through it all. She's the grizzled veteran on our team at all of six years of tenure. And she really is the glue that kept the machine running and kept things together. And then we hired two other folks to take over and fill up the team fully. As of this month, we are fully on board, ready to go. We benefited a ton last year. The markets were very, I wouldn't say they're benign, they were very supportive. And that gave me the time to do a lot of house cleaning. We rewrote the investment policy statement. We combined several of our asset classes into kind of more bigger buckets. We had to rejigger our benchmarks because of that. I had the opportunity to do all of that last year when things were fine. Now we have a team in place, that stuff is done. And if you do it the right way, you don't have to revisit it. And suddenly we have volatility you know, back from any angle, any corner of the world you want to pick. There's a lot. I feel very fortunate that I had that time last year to kind of ease into the transition into a CIO spot. And then all of a sudden now we can, we can hit the ground running. Yeah. So I'm going to go through a bunch of those opportunities. Where did you come out in terms of that structure, say asset allocation? So 
I would say that a big difference between starting here at Wallace in 2021 versus starting at Rockefeller in 2011. Rockefeller was at that time a complete teardown. And so I took a lot of lessons, worked with Amy for nine and a half years. The first thing that she did was get the team right. She really rebuilt the team from scratch and I was her first new hire. So I'm actually used to working on a lean team. It was just she and I for you know a good year and a half. And then we built that team up to about five investment professionals, all of whom were just exceptional and we were off and running there. But she didn't waste any time doing that. It was very quick. So when I got here, I took a lesson saying, yes, we need to get the right players in the field, and then let them do great things. And so that was a terrific lesson to be learned. Asset allocation-wise, Rockefeller was a teardown. It had to be kind of rebuilt from scratch, rethink everything. There was very little that we kept in terms of managers back in the day. Fast forward to Wallace, I would say half the portfolio was fine, totally fine. And if anything, we actually, some groups that I knew of before, some groups I got to meet for the first time and actually added to them over the course of last year. The other half are areas which we can definitely improve. And so from an asset allocation perspective, we increased our exposure to privates from 25% to 35%. So that's a great benefit because last year, everybody came back to market. And I know know, the denominator problem seems to be a perpetual problem with VC. It's either too small or it's too big. (laughs) And it's never just right. The benefit that we had was we were underweight from where we wanted to be. And we had our pick of the litter. And anybody and everybody that was that you would have been on your wish list, either from Rockefeller or from other places, they came back to market. And I had estimated that maybe of all the ones that we wanted to go after ourselves, we might get half of those in terms of allocation. And we might get half the number that we asked for. We batted 1,000. We got everybody we were looking for. And we got the number that we wanted. So not a high-class problem. That actually worked out according to design. That meant that we're probably getting to our 35% target a little quicker, but we're clearly not there yet. So we're still in the market looking for good things. And actually, again, this is just dumb luck, but take advantage of it when it comes. We had an opportunity to put a lot of dry powder with great managers in what is now, six, nine months later, a much, dare I say, sobering environment where purchase prices are just a lot lower, at least in, in the field of healthcare and tech. And how about outside of privates? Hedge funds, again, this is a lesson from Rockefeller. There was kind of one major bucket for just called hedge funds. And what I tried to do was divide them up into two major classes or groups. One are the folks that, are, that truly are giving you equity beta, and they are hedged equity. That's kind of the space in which they play. So it's going to be hopefully less volatile than pure long-only equity, but it's going to play in the equity space. And that's going to have a different risk profile, and it's going to do a different job in the portfolio. And then there's the other hedge funds, which we kind of put catch-all into absolute return. And those are folks that can rotate capital globally into all different types of asset classes where they see the best relative opportunities. And they also play a different role. We actually hope they will have a, a lot less, if maybe no equity beta. They can, they can play in equities, but they can do credit. They can do real estate. They can do commodities, lots of other things. And that's the group where we hope they'll take advantage of opportunities in a much quicker way than we can. By the time we actually think that we should have an inflation play, they're already taking advantage of that in commodities, as an example. I look at those folks as they're really the absolute return moniker. They're really going to be there through thick and thin, producing a nice, stable rate of return called in the 6 to 8% range. And how about the public side, public equity, fixed income? Fixed income. So I'll start with that one first. What I inherited was a group I had never heard of before, but it had been around for 40 plus years. And it was a family business with multiple generations of the family that took over. They only invest in U.S. treasuries. And 
they've been doing it for 40 years. And it's been a great environment to do it over the long haul. They have ridden down the interest rate curve and really produced demonstrable alpha that you can measure over thick and thin. And when I got that, the 10-year treasury rate was 90 basis points. And this was January of 2021. And I said, okay, I got plenty of bigger fish to fry. Let me just kind of put this one on hold for a little bit. And I had my first IC meeting at the end of February that year. And then March comes and I get the quarterly numbers and that position is down 15%. That I think the 10-year had gone to 1.4%. When folks ever say you can't lose money on fixed income, I don't know what finance <laughs> textbook that they're looking at. But that, when I say what kept me up at night, that thing suddenly kept me up at night kind of every day. And their duration that they were carrying was kind of 22 years. Amy Falls always taught me, you know, she and she was a fixed income expert. She said, I have no idea where rates are going. But it doesn't mean that, that maybe this time it's different when the Fed says they're going to raise rates or take away the QE. And so that totally kept me up at night. And it, we were starting to trim in March of that year, and it took us a couple of different bites, but we finally got out of it. It was a good lesson learned. It's like, look, if you figured it out that you don't want that position, then you don't have to dollar cost. Just get out <laughs> and move on to bigger and better things. And so we have since moved that allocation to a, a group up in Boston that we used at Rockefeller done a terrific job. The average duration is actually in the kind of the five to six year time frame, And they actually don't make a call on duration. They are trying to stick very close to the benchmark within 10% of the, um, the Bloomberg Barclays Ag as it relates to duration. And then within that, they're just going to do a better job on asset selection. So that was something I understood, knew this group really well, steady pair of hands. And so we moved that over. That is about 5% of the portfolio. As it relates to long-only equities, that number is about 40%, which we think is fine. It's roughly split, and we have it into three major buckets, U.S., global, and emerging markets. When you kind of pierce through it, it's about half U.S., half global. That feels like it's a good amount. Over time, I think we'll start to trim a little bit from the long-only side to help feed the increase in the privates as they start to come out, because a lot of it's very liquid. Yeah. So with that broad structure, what are the key priorities in the investment portfolio or the things that you're kind of most interested in working on? So there's a bunch, but I would say that on the private side, we've done a great job. I have to give ourselves a little bit of credit because we took advantage of of the opportunity set at the time last year to really build that out. So I think our incumbent list today, it's a lot different than when it was. I inherited several fund of funds and, and even secondary fund of funds, which all of whom they've They've done a great job. They're very solid, exactly kind of what you would hope they produce. But if you have the expertise and you have the network, you should be able to go more direct, directly with managers and actually have better returns. So that was the thesis that I think we executed on last year. This year, in addition to the fixed income piece and getting that right, we've actually looked at real assets and not just because of inflation, but we actually have almost no real estate in the portfolio today. So we've been building up that area and we have several folks on deck the other areas is, is within real assets is natural resources. And so we have a little, we don't have a huge exposure. It's a, a little less than 3% of the entire endowment is in traditional oil and gas, heavy carbon intensive assets. We actually made a decision last year at the committee to decarbonize the portfolio. There's lots of ways in which you can do it. We presented several different alternatives. At the time, this was back in October, November, we looked at the secondary market pricing for the partnership interest that we had. And even back then, the prices were 60 cents on the dollar. So you're not going to get good value for it. Now, since then, with everything going on in Eastern Europe, the prices have been a lot higher for oil and gas. And our managers have actually been selling into that wave. So we've actually, I think our exposure now is on about 2.5%. They've actually been getting money back. 
we decided not to sell on the secondary market and take that big haircut at the time. So then we said, so so now what? Do we just hold it and just kind of, it's not that big an exposure, but it's still there. Do we actually um, let it kind of just burn off literally and figuratively? Or is there something else we can do with what we have today? One of the things we're tossing out there is maybe we purchase carbon credits to offset the exposure so long as it's there until it fully runs off, but it's a way for us to make up for what we're doing to the climate and the environment. So that's one thing. Now, what we're doing on the on the more positive side of that is our new look real assets strategy and natural resources strategy is looking at things that are much more renewable, much more sustainable. And, but it also includes things like agriculture and water and those types of things. Those, I think, are some of the more exciting things because it is a big learning curve for all of us on the team. And it's an area where anybody can be an expert. And so one of our team members raised their hand and said, I actually am excited about this ag fund that we're looking at in London, and I'd love to work on that. And I said, run with it. (laughs) I definitely come from that Amy School of Thought. Here's some more rope. Go ahead. (laughs) Take it with you. (laughs) I'm curious if the conversations have changed that much over the last, call it two months since the invasion, in that there's seems to be more of an appreciation that in the transition to a greener world, there's a need for fossil fuels much higher than, you know, maybe a year or two ago, it was just, okay, let's just get rid of all this stuff. Oil is going to go to zero. That's right. Anybody you talk to, I would say anybody that really has been in this space for any amount of time realizes that you cannot turn a switch and just get off of oil and gas. And if anything, I actually think it really shines a very bright light on secure sources of energy. And what I mean by that, like in North America, we are so blessed for the United States to have a rich pot of natural resources, but also Canada and and Mexico and have friendly neighbors where we can get a lot of access to energy for, you know, kind of relatively cheap prices because it's it's local. Places like Russia are just looked at, everyone's going to look at that now. I don't know if that will ever, regardless of whatever happens with the war, I don't think it's ever going to go back to, you know, people are going to just going to forgive the sanctions and go back to whatever was called normal. I think quite the opposite. And actually what it probably will do, there'll be a very short term bump, which we're experiencing right now, but eventually supply chains will get moved around. Other renewables will increase in favor. I think it'll actually accelerate the move to decarbonization in the world. Now, is that going to happen next year, 10 years from now? No. But if it was going to happen 30 years from now, maybe it happens in 20, because everyone is squarely focused on geographies that are not safe or friendly. So what's that conversation in the boardroom about? On the one hand, it feels like these days it's an easy decision to say decarbonize this is good for the world. On the other hand, you want to keep as broad of an investment opportunity set as you can. That's right. It's a rich discussion and nobody takes it lightly because it has a lot of implications. And it's also, you know, what is our mission? You know, it's to support education and the arts. And, you know, there are plenty of foundations and our brethren that part of their mission is to support the climate and to do things, you know, that are environmentally friendly. And we actually faced this at Rockefeller. Rockefeller had a very unfortunate circumstance with one of their scientists. And there were a lot of lawsuits that came through that we had to basically take an extra year's worth of spend out of the endowment at Rockefeller to help pay for a lot of these lawsuits, that there was no statute of limitations. This happened in the 40s. So this person, long gone, nobody at Rockefeller today, ever even worked with them, ever even met the person. But it is the ultimate black swan event. Like, wow, okay, we have to deal with that. And one of the things we wrestled with is, wow, we certainly should atone for the sins of our predecessors, but this money is money that we can no longer use to support 
curing cancer or diabetes or whatever, you know, Zika or coronavirus. We're taking money that is supposed to go for this great cause to do this. It's not an exact scenario, but it's kind of similar. Do we take money from the endowment to purchase carbon credits, or do we take it and try to be more proactive with it from an investment perspective, actually try to generate a return, make it much more sustainable, and have a more of a positive impact with what we're doing through our investment dollars? Those are the types of things that we wrestle with kind of back and forth. I am so blessed, like I was at Rockefeller, to have a great group of kidney members who are incredibly wise and have seen it all and can help me frame the issues and how we actually attack it and think of the pros and cons. I'm curious about Emerging markets. So China has certainly come up in people's minds, maybe in a slightly different way these days. But a lot of these pools of capital have had, call it relative overweights in emerging markets for a long time, which hasn't really worked. US has been really strong. How are you attacking both China and emerging markets more broadly? We have about 15% of the portfolio, public and private, in Asia. And we'll just, I'll start with China first. So it's, and of that, half of it is in China, half is elsewhere in Asia, which I actually think is a good number. If anything, I could see us maybe tilting a little bit more. But when we think about what the makeup of that is, we actually have a handful of managers that are indigenous to the region versus global managers that give us a piece of what they do is exposure into Asia. What I think we're going to be doing on that front is reducing the global exposure and going more with the local or regional managers. We've actually done some things that we ported over from Rockefeller in Japan, as well as in South Korea. So it's not just China, although China is probably half of our total exposure. And here at Wallace, I had a chance to re-underwrite the thesis. Everything that's been going on last year, in some respects, what we thought was a risk that the Chinese Communist Party would have a heavy hand in regulation and getting involved in things, it actually has happened. So in one respect, it's no longer a risk of the unknown. It's a risk of the very known, and it can happen, and it can continue to happen. If you take a broader perspective and, and kind of open up the aperture, this is cyclical. This happens every seven to 10 years, where the Chinese government makes sure everybody knows and realizes kind of who's in charge at the end of the day. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, we can debate about you know how they're going about it, but they're recognizing the fact that there is a massive amount of wealth dislocation, not just in the world, but particularly within China. They've probably seen our examples or examples in Europe where this is not a good thing at the end of the day. They are very concerned about it and they're actually making changes. And we had to re-underwrite that whole thesis. It doesn't make sense for us to be in China. I actually think it does. And we actually have decided to redouble our efforts and reaffirm the thesis. And I actually think it's also a great entry point. Prices, just like it is with venture, prices are way down, you know, what they've been. But they're not all created equal. That is for sure. And so, and if groups are down, you just want to understand exactly what is going on. Was it a bad call? Are they really dependent on one key person? They have a group that can make decisions together, which we believe it will result in better outcomes if you have more people at the table with more diverse backgrounds. What is happening at, at that spot? And you and I, in the sitting on the Winter Grand Foundation Investment Committee, added two China managers in the last couple of years, and they've had diverging performance. And we can actually see that kind of as a case study, which I think is incredibly valuable. But from our perspective, we actually think that China is going to be the largest economy very shortly. It will grow. It will continue to grow at a rate higher than any other developed country kind of post-COVID. And so we should have exposure to it. How do you think about the whether it's the re-underwriting or certainly with any new manager? You're not traveling to China these days, haven't in a while. So how has that due diligence process evolved? 
I would say the vast majority of the things that we put on the books here at Wallace have been relationships that I've had either at Rockefeller or Winter Gren or any of the other organizations in which I'm affiliated with. So I don't know how else to do it. There is one exception with a group that is an exceptional manager in the UK that is pan-European early stage venture. And that is a group that we got to know last year, never met them in person until about six months ago, but we made a commitment last year and they're now back actually, it was was to their opportunities fund and they're now back with their flagship fund. And it was one that was elusive and never heard of them before until I got to Wallace. And it came in through a placement agent who was a very trusted advisor. He shows us two or three things a year. And whenever he shows us, they go to the top of the pile and he's really high quality. And he rolls over his fee into the product that he's selling. So he's clearly aligned and he's just an impressive person. So when he came calling about that, we had always been looking at Rockefeller for a great pan-European early stage venture investor. We know who the usual suspects are, but I think some of the best ones out there are part of a large global conglomerate. And so you can't just do the Europe fund. You have to do the India fund, or you have to do the growth fund, or you have to actually do all of them. And so we were looking for more pure play kind of rifle shot approach. And when I came across this group, I was floored. And then the more I learned about their investments and their track record, became even more impressed. And what really helped us get over the hump is that they do a lot of work with some of our incumbents, like Insight, like General Atlantic, like Brighton Park. Therefore, we could diligence from afar with people that we knew very well, that knew this group really well. So that was helpful. Otherwise, if we were meeting a group from scratch, it's great. We can certainly meet them on Zoom, but until we actually get on the ground, walk the floor, meet the people, meet the team in person, one-on-ones, you can't do it. Um, And we weren't flat-footed. We actually had some exposure with groups that you know well, you know, large institutional groups have been around for a long time. And those are great, but we can upgrade, I think, with other groups that I've known for a long time. Working with Tian Hao Wu, my great colleague from Rockefeller, who's now at Northwestern with Amy, and with Joyce. When you're dealing with China, I think our secret weapon is to have a native speaker. And when you're speaking in the native language, she can pick up on so many other nuances that I can't. And she can be on the chat boards and just get so much richer view of the diligence. That is truly invaluable. Wouldn't do it otherwise. So you talked earlier about venture and being in this unusual position where you were growing your allocation. And I know a lot of people are on the other side of that where returns were great, funds are coming back, they're coming back bigger. What are you seeing in that landscape in terms of how your peers are approaching this challenge? Yeah, we are going to London next week, and I think we're the only investors going to London that are not going to the Sequoia annual meeting. I think there's going to be hundreds of people, and they're going to be in Windsor, I think in Windsor. So it could be a super spreader event. I sure hope not. <laughs> I hope everything goes great and everything, everything comes, everyone comes back healthy. But I was astounded. We only found out about that because we're not Sequoia investors because we were meeting our incumbent managers, some of them for the first time in person with me carrying a Wallace business card. And we had to rejigger the schedule because everybody else is meeting them too. I said, wow, what is going on in town? That's the World Cup, effectively, (laughs) of our world. So what people are doing right now, they're picking out their best relationships and they're trying to concentrate. So I think it's really hard today for a brand new group to try to break through the ice because so many groups have done so well, there isn't a need to go out and find new managers. The incumbents have done a great job, just stick with them. Some groups did a better job of taking advantage of the record liquidity last year and getting the money back and enabling people to kind of help reload. 
we actually have an incumbent who who has a, actually a lot of public company exposure that they own a pretty big stake of it. They've not been able to sell down or at least have not wanted to sell down in the market or distribute the shares. And, they, and they've managed to keep those positions and not have as much liquidity, which just leaves people less dollars to kind of recommit and, and to kind of roll over in that sense. And how about on the private equity side? You seen the same dynamic? doesn't seem to be as acute, I would say. The velocity of the capital doesn't seem to be as hot as it has been in venture. Not sure why. We actually have a lot more exposure, again, in the kind of the fund-to-funds arena. But we also have some terrific incumbent managers. And so where we were really looking to rebuild venture from scratch, we've only had a couple spots that we've filled on the private equity side. And most of who we have incumbent managers are heavy tech, if not all tech. Everybody's doing tech these days. Everybody has a tech group, but most of these groups that we have and that I inherited are solely tech. So we've been looking for decidedly non-tech. And there's a great group here in New York that we had at, at Rockefeller, which is going to be very easy for us to port over. And they're raising right now. They're generalists in nature. They do industrials. They do healthcare. They do business services. They do franchises. They do a lot of different things. And they're actually a great window onto how is the U.S. economy? How is it dealing with inflation? They're kind of a an ad hoc research analyst that I will talk to to get their views because they have 150 incumbent portfolio companies that are on the ground dealing with inflation on a daily basis. Well, let's go to that. Inflation is here potentially on the rise, potentially for a long time after a a long deflationary environment. How do you take that risk and think about it in the portfolio and then act if appropriate? We have to dust off the playbook. Most of my professional career, we've been living in an environment where there has been no inflation. I remember growing up in the 80s when I was in grade school, I remember 15, 16% Fed funds rate. And my sister, my older sister, she was saving for college. She got a CD that was yielding like 16% interest. And I thought, wow, I had no idea what that meant in terms of you know how expensive everything else is in the world. But what a great trade for her. She made 60%. By the time I got saving for college, I was maybe it was 5%. And nowadays it's 2%. So we have to figure out what a rising rate environment means. It's been a long time since we've had one sustained rising rate environment. We've had a couple of tantrums where there's been a big retreat. I tend to think that the Federal Reserve, they never seem to get it right. They're right in the direction, but in the execution, they never really navigate a soft landing, per se. We're expecting bumps along the ride. So what's the best thing that we can do? We can think about our floating rate that will kind of go up with the rate of interest rates. And one of those in particular is a manager in the West Coast that is involved in direct lending to real estate managers, to sponsors. It's remarkably stable rate of return, kind of in the 10 to 12% net range with maybe a third of that being current yield and the rest of it kind of coming out as the loans are realized. You're betting on their execution, on their credit quality. And at the end of the day, they're just great credit managers but they can bob and weave and float up and down with interest rates. That's kind of one way to do it. You can also look at other real assets that might do better. Actually, the real estate itself, you could look at commodities, other different types of things. But as I mentioned before, we're not trying to be too tactical in that front and say, okay, let's put today's trade is inflation. So let's go ahead and find an inflation hedge, if you will. I mentioned that our absolute return folks, they're going to figure that out and be able to act on it a lot quicker than we can. So we actually, that was one of, another thing that we did last year, we kind of rebuilt the absolute return group. It was Things were also just mischaracterized. Things that should have been absolute return were characterized as hedged equity and vice versa. Once we kind of were able to sort all that out, we were able to kind of build that piece up of the hedge fund portfolio and very excited with where we are today. And we actually added some credit in that space. 
we really haven't had a big distress. I've seen the last 10 years as if there is a, a distressed moment in time, it's a blip. There is so much capital that is just waiting on the sidelines to kind of plow into from dedicated distressed managers and their time, the window just opens and closes very quickly. So we're not looking for anybody that has a specialty in distress credit, but we are looking for credit experts that can make money in any environment, but they have a huge tailwind when a distressed market kind of comes around. So those are some groups that we added into that absolute return bucket. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. So I've often described these bulls of capital as more battleships than fleet boats. And the way you describe it, yeah, there's like a manager you can add that in real estate that has inflation sensitivity, but that's what, 1% or 2% of the pool. How do you think about, so it could be inflation, it could be something else, but something that could be meaningful across the portfolio in just trying to interpret what that risk is in all the assets you currently own, given that you're not going to make big shifts externally. No, that's exactly right. And how do we navigate those waters? So we're talking to our folks multiple times throughout the year and just trying to understand. And what I love talking about our managers is like, forget about what's going on in the world, but how are you managing your companies? And how are you thinking about your positions? And how does the book get balanced? We read so much from the outside world that is just the talking heads or the prognosticators uh, or even the, the, the policymakers. But when you actually peel away the onion and you see exactly what's happening at the underlying portfolio company level and how folks are feeling inflation and is it transitory, how folks are actually adjusting to it. I was speaking to somebody yesterday who has a public investment, I think, in DoorDash. And he talks to that management team quite often. And the inflation that they're feeling is everywhere. It is in the packaging of the materials. It is in the food costs. It is in the gasoline that their drivers use. It is in the wages. And we haven't seen a coordinated rise in prices the way we've seen it now. And so that to me thinks this is not temporary. The beauty about the US economy is, is its dynamism. What does that really mean? Is that they will figure out a way. They will figure out the supply chains. They will adapt to the current conditions, but it won't happen quickly and it won't happen overnight. And as they're doing that, the world continues to move. So it is kind of trying to hit this moving target as best you can. But I'm just trying to stay ahead of the wave, if you will, or stay on top of the wave. Things are going to be continuing to move. And frankly, we're investing for the next, I say, infinite time period. But honestly, it's not 10 years or 20 years. It's infinite. We want our mission to be around forever. And the better we do, the more we can give away. We can increase the good that we do. I'm just trying to make sure that 
when there are opportunities, we're able to take advantage of them. So have dry powder kind of always reserved so that we can play a bit of offense when everybody is kind of thinking defensively. And how do you balance that in the day-to-day of the portfolio? Does that mean you're always going to have a cash balance? And if so, how big? Yeah, it's a great question. It reminds me of some of the things we've talked about at the Winter Gren Foundation, which you know you were incredibly wise to suggest that there is a slush fund, if you will, of rainy day money that you want to have always as a reserve. But then there's also, there's no need to hold excess cash. So right now we have about 2% of cash, and then we have another 5% in, in the fixed income piece, which is incredible. It's daily liquidity, so call it 7%. We're not net fixed income to get a huge amount of yield. It really is there as ballast. It is there to potentially play offense if need be, but it's also there for deflation if we can ever see that world again. But that's the role that it plays in the portfolio. But So we're not looking for outsized returns in that area. One of the things that we did to try to help with at least the idea of not having too much cash, not having a need for too much cash, something that we did at Rockefeller and we did it here at Wallace last year was we opened up a credit line. It seems very basic. When we did our research, about half of the foundations in the country have credit lines, half don't. So you can pick and choose. There's no right answer here. But we were able to work with our existing bank to get a committed line of credit without a commitment fee. And we can borrow up to one year. And it's a floating rate of interest. The spread that we're paying is incredibly cheap. We did it last year before rates started really kind of skyrocketing. And that covers, the amount that we took out is $50 million, which covers half of a year's worth of spend. So we're $2 billion in AUM, our 5% target is at roughly $100 million. So half of that $50 million is what we took out to give us just rough numbers, six months of leeway of spend rate that we know we can tap into if we need to. And it really is meant to be rainy day fund. So how bad is it after rain? Pretty bad. And the other thing I learned when I got here is we don't spend evenly throughout the year. So that $100 million, when we looked at the historical patterns, about 40% of our spend happens in the last quarter of the calendar year. So October, November, December. So if we had another 08-like event in October of I'm not going to say 2022, but like at some point in time in, in, in my lifetime, you know, when you're down 20% in a couple of weeks, that would be the type of rainy day thing where we might invoke, we might take down the credit line. You could certainly argue that maybe the credit line won't be there. That's a risk that we can only underwrite so much. But the history of this organization, they've never done that. Even during the global financial crisis, they always honored their credit lines. And maybe we'd take it out before that, you know, just to even draw down on it. But that would be the type of thing where that would give us six months of cushion to help markets recover so we weren't selling the crown jewels to meet our spend. That is a lesson that I learned at Rockefeller. I learned it at Common Fund. I learned it at Vista Equity Partners. You name it. That was just be ready well in advance of the crisis. So in theory, that makes sense. You've got the infrastructure laid. You've got the excess reserves if you need them. In practice... When markets are taking a hit, people notoriously don't invest in those points in time. So how have you set up a process such that you think that when that time comes, you will take advantage of it? Yeah, it's a great question. I actually uh, printed out some materials that we presented to our committee earlier this week, and it is exactly that. So we actually took our lumps in January and February of this year in parts of the portfolio that were heavily exposed to biotech and to software. Those, you know, obviously very growthy by definition, but in particular, for all the reasons, all the risks out there, everything got finally digested at one point in time, and the market went from being heavy risk on to heavy risk off in those particular sectors, and probably was way overbought, and now is probably way oversold. And so just making sure that you go to the committee with data. I think the first thing is you got to have a great 
relationship with your committee. You should start with that. And that is definitely a lesson that I learned from Amy Falls. And get to know them on a personal level well in advance of a crisis so that there's a level of trust. And then also having a playbook, talking to them about what is on your mind all the time. There's always risks and things that we're wrestling with. And talking with the committee and kind of having a playbook ready to go. I hate to say it's off the shelf because it's going to depend on the conditions of the time. But at least saying if these things were to happen, this is where we would see the opportunities. And this is where we would you know, probably take the biggest hits in the marketplace and what we're doing today to try to ensure against that. When they saw you know, some of our managers were down 10 15% so far in 2022, that's a big number. And some of them are down 50% from their peaks. And again, they were way overbought before, but that wipes out several years with the gains when you're down 50%. And it really tests the, the fortitude of, were we right until the day we were wrong? Or is this now an opportunity to be had? But just making sure that we're being very intellectually honest with the committee, that we don't come in with hunches, we don't come in with ideas, we come in with facts and with data and presenting that to the committee and talking through it together, not feeling like we're the only ones that are paying attention to this, you know, actually soliciting their views, getting their feedback, and making better decisions. Curious how you approach working with your team. One thing I think that we did really well at Rockefeller is we hired well. I'm a big believer that hire great people, and, and that definition of great encompasses not only just their raw skill sets and their work ethic, but also just their personalities and just how they are. They're high-integrity type people. How'd you go through the recruiting process to get that right? I ran the recruiting effort at Common Fund way back in the day, and there was a group that we worked with that just was perpetually producing superstar candidates for us at the kind of the junior level. So these are folks that were already had a job out of undergrad, and then we were getting them kind of for their next phase of their career for two or three years as kind of a rotational program, all generalist, and then they would move on typically to go off to do something different, business school or some other job. And you're getting some folks that are bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. They already have some work experience, thank God. You don't have to teach them how to dress. You don't have to teach them how to talk in a meeting. <laughs> Somebody else you know, did the heavy lifting for all of that. So by the time you're getting them, they actually have an expertise in something. But they also have a dose of humility. And I think that is the most important thing that I look for. It's one of my most valuable, I would say, investment qualities. One of the things you had asked me once upon a time was, you know, what's your favorite hobby? And it's golf. And I think golf and investing have a lot of similarities. When you play with somebody for a long time, you know if they're really good or not. If you haven't played with somebody, if it's somebody brand new, you're not sure if they had a good shot. Is that luck or is it skill? And after a while, after more reps, you realize sometimes that it's definitely both or it could be you know, really lucky. Who knows? But that's the same way with investing. You kind of know over a long period of time, is the manager really good at what they do? If they're really good, they're hopefully going to take advantage of luck when it comes their way. But it's definitely more skill than luck. We're trying to kind of suss that out, even at an early stage. Do they have that dose of humility where they know they don't know everything, but they're anxious to learn and they're hungry and they will do whatever you ask them to do. Like if you say, go and take a look at this ag fund, they will do it with reckless abandon, dare I say. That, that has been so fun and so invigorating. But it starts with, with the junior folks. And what we prefer to do is grow folks from within. So at Rockefeller, we were able to do that because we started from scratch. And some of our best folks, they didn't leave the firm. We had a path to promotion and we kept them if they wanted to stay and were doing a great job. And they've now gone off and done great things at their other organizations. We've kind of done a little bit of the same here, but I inherited Joyce, who has been terrific. We hired Kate Schlinke as our most junior resource out of VCUs and down with Simcoe, and she's been a rock star. And then we just added the final piece to our puzzle with Signa Conway, who came over from the Met. And do you think about the team as generalists or specialists? 
definitely generalists. I want everybody to do everything. But having said that, they can have majors and minors. So as an example, Joyce, with her language skills and with her experience in Asia, very natural for her to anything and everything that involves Asia, she's absolutely going to be on the team for that. Doesn't mean anybody else, it's off limits, quite the opposite. But Joyce is going to be leading the charge. As it relates to ag and real assets in general, it's we don't have very much exposure to it today. It's kind of a wide open marketplace. So anybody that raises their hand and says they want to learn more about it, great. You can be the captain, kind of head up that ship. The other thing we look for are folks that are intellectually curious. They actually don't take anything for granted. They're kind of deep research analysts, if you will, and they can do things on their own, but they can also work well with other people. So they can go out and bird dog something and, and bring it back to the fold and work with each other and make the case. And we can all discuss it and decide the best thing that we have, and I mentioned like in our time is the only thing that we really control. A small team, we can get together multiple times a week, sometimes via Zoom, sometimes in person, and we can reset our priorities at any point in time. We can kind of say, you know, we've been working on this for a long time. We thought it was great and we decided we're going to move on. So let's just stop that, move on and move something else. We can bob and weave very quickly. So we can have folks that kind of head up things. They can come back, pitch their ideas. We can talk about it as a group and we can either decide based on the relative opportunities that we have at the time. Yes, we should pursue that more or no, we won't. Let's put that on ice or keep in touch with them for a later day and move on to the next thing. Folks that feel uncomfortable with that, or they feel like, oh, they take it personally, like, oh my gosh, this was my baby and we didn't do it. There's no room for that. I actually don't care. There was a little bit of a quality initially that folks got graded here for what they sourced. And I said, look, we're all sourcing things from any which way. And clearly not all created equal. They're going to come in from all over the place. Keep that funnel nice and wide because we want to have lots of wonderful things to pick from. But with our size, we don't have to do everything. Quite the opposite. We can really pick and choose. And the bigger the funnel, that means the pickier that we can be to pick just those big fat pitches. So everyone is responsible for that. No one's going to get graded on whether or not their idea made it in the portfolio. At the end of the day, we all make that decision. And one thing that we do, which might seem a little bit trite, but whoever's leading the charge on diligence and drafting the investment committee memo, they take the first cut at it, and then they circulate it to everybody. And we have kind of a round robin where everybody gets to comment on it and give some suggestions. That way, when the final product goes to the investment committee, it's a team product. We're all behind it. It's not like, well, I wouldn't have done that. Well, if you're going to say that, hopefully you said it in advance. And it's not a majority rule. It's, it's definitely a benevolent dictatorship. But we make the best decisions and we make them as a team. So you may not be in favor of it for whatever reason. If you've had your opportunity to voice your disagreements, and if we haven't convinced you with data and facts, it's one thing to disagree. Everyone can look at a set of facts and disagree on it. But if it's because there's something that we just didn't diligence, we'll go back and, and figure it out. Once we've made a decision as a team, it is definitely every team member's obligation to get behind it. Well, I'm curious what your memos look like for the committee. I hope there's no copyright infringement laws, but dare I say, from a format perspective, they look kind of similar to Rockefeller. I think we had a really good process back in the day, and we had a really good format for how we draft things. I would say the first couple pages are the most impactful. The first paragraph, we're trying to explain what the opportunity is and why it makes sense for Wallace. And, and we have to do that within a paragraph. So it can't be pages and pages. Then we have the pros and cons. And that's where I think it has to be really thoughtful. It's tempting when you have a re-up with a manager that you've been with for four or five funds that those aren't going to change so much. But we really have to scrub that and dig deeper. If anything, you know, we re-underwrite any commitment of capital, whether it's to a new manager or to an incumbent, the same way. But really have to be thoughtful. And so I think a lot of the effort will go in once all the diligence is complete into those first couple pages. 
And then after that, it's more standard type of things like the team, the strategy, and the performance. Those are what I call the big three. And then we analyze the terms, the actual legal terms, to make sure that those are up to snuff. We summarize our references, who we spoke to, and what their comments were in a blinded fashion. We list who their existing limited partners are in terms of investors, and then anything else kind of supplementary in the back that might actually be helpful. One of the things that that I had to train folks at Rockefeller when they came from other jobs, they put everything and anything into the memo. And I said, let's just distill this down. We're not going to put all the work that we did, you know, quite the opposite. We're going to really put down things that are impactful. And they turn out to be roughly 10, 12 pages worth of stuff. But I mean, it's exhibits and it's not all like heavy duty lifting. But I would say that the most important are in the first three pages. And one of the beauties of reading it is if you're in the weeds, you might think it's wonderful. And someone else can give you a perspective and say, I don't know if that's as good as the opportunity we saw in Asia before or the one in Europe or South America. Maybe we should rethink X, Y, Z. They don't just get the draft on their desk, we're talking about it at every investment committee meeting and making sure that we're going through our pipeline report and who should be working on what, who's got capacity, who doesn't. And everyone can see it. It's very transparent. It's very open. They can all contribute to it. As you're going through building from the aspects of a rebuild, the team, the portfolio, I'm curious when something like crypto comes up, which is just a different area that requires a level of understanding of new language and everything, how do you tackle it? Yeah, I know we've talked before about when it's something is brand new, we don't ever want to be the first mover here at Wallace. We, and the good news is we're small enough, the world's big enough, there's nothing we have to do, and there's lots of things that we could do, and let's figure it out, what makes sense to us. Where do we have any area of expertise? Where do we have an edge if we have one? And if we don't, we should really think about that. Crypto is definitely one of those areas where we've already missed the boat, if you will. We're definitely not first movers. We're digesting it very slowly. One of the first ways we're trying to learn about it, and we actually have a team member, Joyce raised her hand, and she actually did some work early back in the day in crypto, and she actually did, I think, a fellowship with Hill House, uh, with Lei Zhang. And I think Lei may have actually helped bring her under his wing to help with that. So she raised her hand and said, I actually have done a little bit of work in this space, kind of know some of the players. I said, great, take it and run with it. And start with some of our managers that are already doing crypto investments. So we don't have any dedicated crypto funds, but we have a couple, not all, but a couple of venture managers who were early investors in Coinbase. Okay, let's talk to them first. They're going to have a perspective and let's see what we can glean from the people that actually worked in that space and, and just go to some conferences, really start to build up that intellectual property and come back and share the findings with the team. And then we can all figure out what's going on. We've had plenty of opportunity to dedicate a crypto. And I just think that that's not ready to take that plunge quite yet. Before we turn to a couple of closing questions, what is most on your mind in terms of risk? Wow. Can I use everything? <laughs> I'll say maybe what's different this year than last year. This year, inflation is real. I think now we know it's here and we believe it's going to last for a while. It's not going to go away in 2022 magically. Geopolitical tensions have always been around, but now they're staring us in the face and we're dealing with it every day with the atrocities happening in Eastern Europe. If anything, maybe a risk that I thought was going to be bigger last year is maybe not as big this year. I could be totally wrong, but the risk of something happening with Taiwan. Given the response of the Western allies and NATO to Ukraine and and to Russia, perhaps that has maybe changed the calculus a bit as it relates to what's going on in Taiwan. At the end of the day, maybe it's just delayed it. Maybe it's just pushed off for the next 50 years. Who knows? But I think if it broke the other way, where there wasn't, there was a lot of discussion, but there wasn't a lot of action, there wasn't a lot of uniting against kind of a common cause or united for a common cause, then 
maybe that would have changed the calculus for what's happening there. So that's a risk I would say that's probably not as big a deal in my mind, even though it's, I don't, I don't mean to belittle it and say it doesn't exist, but maybe it's a little less hot than it was maybe a year ago. Valuations have come down quite a bit. So that's a risk that I was talking to my committee a lot last year about froth and what's been happening, particularly in the venture space. And again, I feel this is lucky than smart. I feel fortunate that we were able to get access to terrific managers at a time when most of those commitments we made last year are still undrawn or lightly funded, and the environment's just much better now. This is a much better investment environment as opposed to harvesting environment, so it's kind of not a bad thing. So it is a just a basket. The risks are always there. I have a greater appreciation for that sitting in the CIO seat because you know when you're the deputy, you can you can have your thoughts and opinions, and you, you can blame Amy. <laughs> Nowadays, I get to look in the mirror and, and I can blame the guy in the mirror. <laughs> Great, Tom. Let's turn to a couple of closing questions. I mean, you already talked about golf, so we'll sketch on uh, favorite hobby or activity. Here's one. If you could start over today, money was no object, and you couldn't be an investor or an asset allocator, what do you think you would most like to do? I think I would most like to be a teacher. I had experience at Common Fund pinch hitting at a class at the University of Dayton where three of my brothers went to school. And it was such a fun thing. They would invite me back every year to speak at a class and talk about private equity investing, something that I had done as a direct investor once upon a time in a prior life and had some fluency to talk about it and actually went through a deal that I had worked on that actually turned out to be good. And so that was so fun. And these were kids in college. They were 19, 20-year-olds. And the enthusiasm, the energy, both the intellectual as well as the emotional high you get from seeing their eyes light up. And of course, there's always the fun kids in the back who are asleep. But just seeing how they get engaged, there is no better feeling. And in some respect, I get a little bit of that high working with my team. I'm always teaching and always learning every single day. And and they have things that they are teaching me and and things like that. So you get a little bit of that. But I think if I could redo things, I would probably do that full time. What's your biggest personal pet peeve? Oh boy, I would say procrastination. The world is just moving faster today than it ever has before. And social media kind of amplifies that. And there's definitely a difference between that and contemplation. So I don't want to make it sound like you just have to kind of run around with your chicken with the head cut off. But if folks are procrastinating just because, I have so little tolerance for that. And I I don't say like with our managers, it would be like with team members. But again, I would hope to be able to suss that out pretty quickly. The folks that I have on my team now, I have to bring them back a little bit and say, let's not try to boil the ocean. Let's try to, whatever we're looking at, let's try to distill it so that we can, it can be actionable. So I have kind of the opposite problem. But when I think about people I've come across in my life that have just been procrastinating, that bothers me. How about on the investment side, investment pet peeve? Herd mentality. Not saying this by any means about crypto, but just... Crypto's everywhere these days. We're getting a solicitation a day about a brand new crypto fund from some incumbent managers, from brand new managers, folks spinning out. And I don't want to pick on crypto. I'm just saying like the idea that everybody in our business, we get that moniker every now and then that we're just kind of following the herd. And I think that's one of the more dangerous things that we all care about. And I don't think anybody wants to be part of that, but we, we should all be very careful. And it also doesn't mean we should be contrarian just for the sake of being contrarian. It just means we should have our own thoughts. We should all be critical in our thinking and continuously questioning things and not take anything for granted. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? I have two. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to give you three. I'll do it quicker so it'll fit in the same time. So one person that I met while at Common Fund was Bill Dietrich. 
out of Pittsburgh. And he was the grandfather or the godfather of Pittsburgh and was so involved in so many different groups and put together so many investment teams. And he really is so impressive for so many reasons. One of my most treasured possessions is a picture with him before he passed. And we were both kind of smiling. And he knew the value of relationships. He also had great civic pride in the city of Pittsburgh and being from Cleveland. I admire it from afar. I can't like it too much. It's against my DNA, (laughs) but I absolutely have the most admiration for him and and what he was able to do to take a city and really cobble together tremendous purchasing power and investment power by sharing information and bringing people together. And if he came across a great idea, he would share it with University of Pittsburgh Medical Center or with Carnegie Mellon or with the Symphony or any of the groups that, that had pools of capital invest. I can't think of another city like that, where everyone went to him to kiss the ring. But it was much more than that. They all worked together. They all shared information. And collectively, they were incredibly powerful and could get access to things because they could combine their smarts and their purchasing power. Really impressive. Amy Falls, how could I not say that? Taught me so many lessons, so many things. But I think in particular, Amy's capacity to process information is enviable. So I could never possibly emulate that. But what I took from her is her ability to manage things and to prioritize and to realize that not everything is important. Not everything has to be done today. Maybe never. Some things just don't don't matter as much. And focus on what does matter and prioritize. And she also managed upwards in a terrific way, managing the committee. I do not exist here without the committee. I serve at their leisure and never forget that. That's your constituency. In addition to everybody else in the organization at Wallace and, and all of our grantees. But at the end of the day, if I'm not doing what the committee wants me to do, I'm doing something wrong. Last person, if I can squeeze another one in there, is Bill Ford. You gave me the great honor to interview Bill last year as part of the series, and just can't say enough good things about him. But he is such a consummate professional. And what I picked up from Bill was so many things, but if I get to think of just one thing that really sticks out is his ability to deliver bad news. And whether that be, hey, I'm not in favor of this commitment, or we're not going to invest in this company, or we have to fire this executive, whatever. Bill does so many things that are great, but you really get to know somebody and the metal that they're made of when they have to make a tough decision. And Bill will make the tough decision, but he does it always as gracious a way as possible and always with a dose of humanity. And I think that is just something that we all can get better at. And he's a master at it. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I'd have to look at my mother. And if I ever think that I work hard, I just have to put myself back into perspective. For most of my growing up, and I was the youngest of eight children, she was the breadwinner, the sole breadwinner as a head nurse in Akron, Ohio. I actually wrote about this in my business school application, learning about labor relations, like why I wanted to go to business school is to get an idea. There were times where she was on strike. And I never knew what that was back in the day when they had unions. She went from being on the line to being you know, in management. So she's seen both sides of it. But I would be on the picket lines with her. And I remember like, what am I doing here? It's cold. <laughs> I'm sitting by this giant fire, this drum that's you know, providing warmth. And we're holding these signs and yelling scab at people crossing the picket lines. <laughs> I can't remember how old I was, but I was young. And I was thinking, why is my mom doing this? Is, am, I, am I part of a propaganda technique? And the answer was, there was no daycare. She couldn't afford it if there was, but I was there just because there was no place else to put me. And so as I got to the age of reason and tried to understand and have my own children, my own family, the pressures that she went went for, and many times she had two jobs and working weekends and would always come home 
always make dinner, always get our lunches ready for school. She taught me how to work hard, no question about it. And also humility. She never asked for anything in return. She led by example. And I would say that is an absolute lesson that I, I take to this day. All right, Tom, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? <laughs> when you think about what you want to do for a career, figure out what you're really good at and what you like to do and find that intersection. So many times, and I'll give you an example. I'm a reformed venture capitalist. I started out working in venture in March of 2000 in San Francisco and left a really excellent job in Connecticut doing private equity with an awesome organization. And it was easy. And I loved the idea of venture capital and I wasn't good at it. And I was there for 18 months, arguably in like the worst time ever, or you could think of it as maybe it was the best time ever because it really told me like how hard this business is. If anybody thinks venture is easy, they are out of their tree. It is incredibly difficult. You have to get, you, you have to be a salesperson. You have to promote things and think they're the best thing ever if you're a good venture capitalist, realizing that you're going to be wrong eight, nine times out of 10. And that's really hard, especially if you have an ego to kind of digest all that. I fundamentally not a technologist, did not understand how the bits and the bytes worked, couldn't realize how this one particular company that we invested in is going to be better than the other 20 that looked just like it. And it turns out all 21 of them went away in the bubble bursting. But I had a great appreciation for it. When you find a good venture capitalist and you can try to do your own work and suss it out, make your own determination, they are literally gold. And even though I really liked it, I wasn't good at it. So then I had to figure out, okay, what else do I really like? I really like investing. What else am I good at? And when you find that intersection, you're done. You've kind of made it. That took me a while to learn. Tom, thanks so much for taking the time. Ted, always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time. 